everybody, and welcome to the show. You know, if there ever were a city that needed a book to summarize the utter weirdness of its sports life and sports happenings, it would be Cleveland, Ohio. The phrase only in Cleveland certainly applies to our sports year in and year out. Vince Guerreri, a longtime writer here in our town, is penning his third book. It's for Gray Publishing, Weird Moments in Cleveland Sports. You know, we've had home runs bounce off of players' heads and over the wall. We've had teammates crawl through ceilings and ductwork to retrieve cork bats. We've had teams move from our city. We've had owners get sued. We have had owners that are so atrocious, the league steps in to enact rules to save the day and to save the franchise. Vince's read is hilarious and it's also scary because this is our town, our calamity, our sporting life. I sat down recently with Vince and we chatted and tried to unpack all of the sports insanity in our town. And in true weird moments fashion, our studio was the front seat of my Ford 10-year-old SUV with 155,000 miles on the odometer. No, we were not driving. We were parked in the parking lot of a Barnes & Noble as he was about to go in and sign books for his publisher, Gray Publishing. Hope you enjoy the interview. Here is Vince and our chat with Weird Moments in Cleveland Sports. So great to have you on and wondering first and foremost, what was the driving force to get this book going? What what was that little seed that you threw in the ground there? Well, honestly, it was uh, it, it was crowdsourced on Twitter. Uh, it was a, you know, a conversation that came up on social media. And this would have been before the pandemic hit of, okay. you know, how there seems to be just this inordinate amount of strange stuff that has happened in Cleveland sports history. <laughs> and then the pandemic hit. And the more I thought about it, the more I said, you know, I, I think we got enough here that I can come up with an outline. And that's that's how most nonfiction books begin. A uh, book proposal of an outline and maybe a couple of sam- sample chapters, and um, you know it kind of kind of grew from there. And and all of a sudden, once the pandemic hit, I had free time and no sports to watch, so I kind of kind of dove into this. And how do you start on a project like that? Do you, is it just one event that kind of caught your eye, or you experienced personally, and you went from there, or? Uh... Was it just all that exposure that you got on the social media aspect of it? It wasn't really one event in particular, but, you know, one leads into another. Everybody says, oh, remember when this happened, and that is, leads to remember when this happened the next year. Um, there was uh, – it's kind of funny. One of the things that comes up in the book is uh, the Cavs shooting a basket into the wrong hoop. And if you're my age, you think Ricky Davis. And actually, that was the second time that happened. Uh, there was one incident like that in in the Cavs' inaugural year that that I had heard about when I wrote a story for for Ohio Magazine about it, and you know there so there are lots of uh, events that remind people of other events and characters that come to the fore. You mentioned Ricky Davis. Obviously, I think the guy you're mentioning was one of their best players, their first ever, I believe, draft pick. Uh, Might have been John Johnson. No, John Warren. John Warren. There you go. There you go. 
thanks for the correction. I was always thinking John Johnson, but that was early era Cavaliers. Yes, yeah. yes, it was, and and you know it's it's really really funny because I talked to a bunch of those guys and you know they were all there for a couple of years, but by the time uh, uh, I think by the miracle of Richfield, the only guy who was still on the team was Bingo Smith. Wow. So let's go back to the miracle of Richfield, at least to the Cavaliers in general. Uh, one of the most infamous characters in the history of that team, Ted Stepien. Yes, yes, <laughs> he was, and that's that's you know, that was one of the things that that I found in in writing uh, uh, in writing this book is you know you'll hear people complain about uh, the Haslam's or the Dolans today, but the bar for being a bad sports owner in Cleveland is really really high. And and a lot of that is due to Ted Stepien, because I mean he he hamstrung the Cavs so bad he loved trading away their draft picks yep. uh, for players that really were past their prime or didn't amount to a whole lot, and to the point where the league had to approve any deal he made, and then after that set a rule in place that you can't trade your first round pick in back to back years. So, I mean, he did all kinds of, of really, really, uh, let's diplomatically say, interesting things. <laughs> but the really sad part is he was, in the 70s, I mean, he was one of the guys with the cash to back it up. Yeah. Um, you know, Nick Maletti was the founding owner of the Cavs. He owned the Indians for, for a time as well. And, you know, he was one of those guys who could, the, the line I got from Bill Fitch was, uh, he would he could sell you the Brooklyn Bridge whether you wanted to buy it or not. You know he was very good at getting people uh, to invest in him, and and, and unfortunately, you know, uh, he wasn't as liquid as it would later become necessary to be, to be a sports owner. But uh, yeah, Stepien did uh, a lot of of really interesting things. He also owned one of the other things that made it into the book. He also owned a softball team, a a, a professional slow pitch softball team, and. One of the things they did is they threw softballs off the top of the terminal tower as a stunt. The Good in- idea at the time. Actually, it was. <laughs> this was this the 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 Indians had done it in the 30s and and it went reasonably well. Uh, when there was a when the Senators were in Washington, they would occasionally do that where they throw a ball off the top of the Washington Monument. But when they were celebrating the 50th anniversary of the terminal tower. They said, let's, uh, to the Indians, do you want to do this again? And they said, no. And Ted Stepien says, yeah, yeah, I'll do it. And and it was. I mean, it was just, they did it at lunchtime one day, and it was just a disaster <laughs> from the word go. He ended up settling a lawsuit later on because he actually broke somebody's arm throwing the softballs off the uh, uh, top of the terminal tower. You know, it's kind of weird when he came in, in into the league. Uh, you already had Jerry Buss kind of, you know, doing his thing out in Los Angeles. And I thought in some ways Ted wanted to be, you know, entertainer slash owner of a team. He had the teddy bears. He had uh, the guy that used to bite the tops off of beer cans as part of his side act. He had who George, the guy that could dribble basketballs and spin them on the tops of glasses. It was always like a circus act for that guy. And, and it, what a weird juxtaposition because he was a brilliant businessman, how he built that uh, uh, a company that you know did ads and got ads in newspapers and what have you. Oh yeah, that, and that was amazing. I mean, he was really an American success story. Uh, he was a, he was a World War II veteran. Went to uh, what what at the time was Western Reserve College on the GI Bill and started this business up from 
pretty much nothing. And, and you know, unfortunately, as, as we've seen over and over again, you know, success in business does not always uh, transfer over to success in in sports ownership. But he, he really was. He was one of those guys. And, and I couldn't get I had heard this quote and I couldn't nail it down. But apparently at one point he said, I don't understand how the Celtics are so successful. They don't even have cheerleaders. So, I mean, and he was one of those guys who definitely saw that there was an entertainment component and and really a, a sex appeal component yeah. that that, you know, needed to be tapped into. So in that respect, he was a visionary. It was just, you know, very poorly executed. <laughs> uh, there's been so many crazy uh, incidents uh, that have happened in in our sports history here in Cleveland. And uh, and I think your book really spells a lot of the things out. Let's go through a couple couple three of them and then uh, we'll see where this takes us uh jose canseco a lot of people say wow great slugger you think a ball bouncing off of his head for a home run and i'll tell you what on the anniversary on jose canseco's birthday whenever it shows up somebody <laughs> will post that gift somewhere on social media and i can watch it on a loop for an hour it is one of the, still one of the funniest things i've ever seen well i mean just picture someone first of all having a hard enough head i mean I mean, that's kind of required, isn't it? Right, right. And and I obviously he was close enough to the fence that it naturally bounced over. But it was really funny, and, and this relates to another incident in the book. That was out in right field, which is also where Jeff Burroughs was on Ten Cent Beer Night. Okay. Um, and uh, what happened on Ten Cent Beer Night is, I mean, and the field's crowned. So, you know, you're in a dugout, so you can't necessarily see everything at eye level yeah. out in right field. But what happened on 10 cent beer night is, you know, somebody goes and tries to steal Jeff Burrow's cap. Uh, Jeff Burrow falls down. Uh, Billy Martin is the manager of the Rangers, and he's always looking for a fight. And he says, we got to go out there and get him because he's getting attacked in right field. Uh, now, you know, fast forward uh 19 years later, you're out there, and, and if you read the contemporary coverage, or actually you probably were part of the contemporary coverage, weren't you? Because what happened is everybody, um, you know, nobody understood exactly what happened because you couldn't, you know, see all the way out into right field from either dugout. But uh, Mike Hargrove was manager of the Indians yeah. at the time. He had just, I think he had just started uh, the year before as manager of the Indians. And, you know, he said, oh, no, that that that's a home run. And and it turns out that's exactly what it was. It was such a bizarre. Uh, and again, it just things kind of start, bad idea. It sounded cool. Again, another one of those like stepping and throwing the, the ball off the, you know, the softball off the terminal tower it just seemed like a kind of a cool idea. Just didn't didn't work out for them. And I, I un understand your point 100 percent about how the field is crowned. I can recall, you know, you sit behind home plate or you're in that those seats behind home plate it's really hard for you to see like someone making a catch in center field yes yes and that was you know uh, really kind of amazing it was uh, and i had written on this for for some other publications but at the time cleveland stadium was built <clears throat> i think it was the biggest stadium um the multi-purpose stadium in uh, in the united states uh, in the world and you know definitely the biggest baseball venue because, I mean, that, that stadium was built as, you know, this big, enormous facility with a capacity of, I think initially the capacity was up over 80,000. Yeah, it was uh, it was quite the structure. And, and being a kid that grew up in Cleveland, it was like it was my stadium. But, boy, what a dump. It really, 
uh, ended up being. And it just kind of, uh, uh, you have so many visions of it now in my late 60s, looking back at what the sensation was in my head when I first saw that bright green grass, you know, at an Indians game as a little boy. And then when I was there for like the last day they had a game there, you know, the, um, Ernest Biner taking a lap around the stands after they beat the uh, the, um, the Bengals. Cincinnati, they beat the Bengals, and uh, of course the last game there, people were chipping away at the 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 hardware, trying to get the seeds, throwing them on the field. Just such that really was a dump, and they should have. You now know, see, I came of, I on the other hand came of age in the eighties, okay. and so you know you talk about the green grass you saw at Cleveland it Stadium. I saw the dirt painted green at painted, Cleveland Stadium. Exactly. Exactly. And you see the football players uh, with that's paint on this. That's paint. That's not real grass. Yeah, those aren't grass. Yeah. What what the heck is going on here? All right. Let's be we're still on football. Then Uh, Brandon Whedon. I you know, it pains me. It pains me every time somebody talks about what this what a brilliant quarterback guru Mike Holmgren was, what he did with the 49ers with Steve Young what he did uh, with Brett Favre at the Packers, and he thought it was a great idea to burn a first-round pick on Brandon Whedon. Who was 100 years old already. Who was 100 years old already. We were always concerned he was going to break a hip during a football game. But that first game, he comes out, and it was the it was the Eagles. And, you know, they do the thing where they bring out the great big American flag, and he's on the field uh, throwing, uh, throwing warm-up passes. And and clearly demonstrated the situational awareness that became his hallmark as a Browns quarterback. Yes. Because <laughs> he completely missed the flag coming out and ended up hopping under it. And he says, I was just worried that my teammates would see me do this. And I don't know if they did, but I was watching a game on television in Bowling Green, and I did. And I'm going, this, this is a great start. Yeah. We were in the press box uh, at the time, and I can remember uh, being around a few writers who were very astute at this. Of course, everybody's got their binoculars, especially when, like, the kneeling for the anthem stuff came up. Everybody had to have their binoculars. So they could check so they on could see who was yeah, kneeling yeah. or whatever. And at that time, I think just one of the writers was looking around with their binoculars and said, uh, Whedon, you know, 40-yard line or whatever it was. And so uh, sometimes you don't recover from that that type of stuff. Um Let's go back to baseball. Albert Bell, certainly one of the greatest players in Cleveland Indians history, but involved in several incidents uh, I that have, made your book. I have never seen a, a hitter like that in my life. He was he was zoned in. He was laser focused. And, man, I, I feel like there were a lot of people who were legitimately afraid of him. Yeah. And, unfortunately, that's not just pitchers. That's, you know, members of the general public because he was – uh, I believe the most common word I heard used to describe him was surly, and he was he was definitely uh, a very complicated guy, and he just had a a marked inability to to stay out of his own way. You know, I I, I remember I was at I can't remember if it was one of the things at the Terrace Club or or a Saber event or something, uh, but uh, Bob DiBiasio from the Indians said they handled league discipline every time you went to New York. And this was before they did the unbalanced divisional schedule. So they would go to New York a couple of times a year. And he said, sure. and every time it felt like we were, we had to go sit in the principal's office uh, with, with Albert Bell. But, uh, yeah, he was uh, a brilliant hitter. Um, you know, he would he would hit the cover off the baseball. Uh, he would hit the cover off the thermostat in the clubhouse. He would uh, hit the cover off of uh, a, co- a colleague's uh, boombox if he didn't like the song that was playing. Picked fights with writers, picked fights with photographers. 
Pick fights with uh, pick fights with you, right? Uh, he he picked a fight with, believe it or not, with uh, Dan Coglin. Okay. If you can if you can imagine that, uh, which I, is kind of amazing. Cause it, I just saw it, I just saw Dan at the press club Christmas party, and <laughs> he, he just seems like a wonderful human being. <laughs> he really and truly is. Uh, I could give you a million. You could write a book on Dan Coglin and uh, himself. Quite quite the he writer. He took all the best material for himself. Though. He, he's he's he, but again he. Uh, He's got a million years of uh, mining things. I, real quick sidebar, I met Dan Coughlin in Lake Placid, New York. I'm working for a Buffalo TV station, 1980. It's the Winter Olympics. Yes. And I'm there for three straight weeks, and I was had one night off, and I went to the what they made out to be the media bar, which was like Mrs. McGillicuddy's uh, you know, English class from Lake Placid High School. And I go in there to sit at the bar and grab a quick beer, and there was Dan Coughlin from the Cleveland Plain Dealer. And I was like, you know, I'm 10 years old now, meeting the guy that you I used like to read. felt like you got an audience yeah. with the Pope. Yeah, it was really cool, Vince. It really was cool. But uh, we, we hit it off immediately, and then weird things would happen. I'd start working at Channel 8, and then two years later, he had left uh, when he had that short stint with the Cleveland Press, you know. Mm-hmm. And then uh, came to TV, and it was great to work with Danny. Yeah, Danny, uh, Danny, I remember, would stand outside of, like, the scrum with the athlete, and and if Albert was in it and Albert was being surly, Danny would just, you know, shout at him from, you know, you don't have to be this way or something like that. So Danny did not cotton too much to uh, um, to Albert Bell. Albert very much uh, in a, on one of the incidents in your book, Vince, um, regarding the cork bat and then the Mission Impossible that came from that. That, that <laughs> you know, and that's probably like the the. The, the moment that started, uh, you asked about a moment that started it all, and that's the one that everybody wants to talk about. It's such a great story. It is such a ridiculous story. And we didn't know the full truth. Grimsley, I think, finally copped to it about five uh, or six years after the fact. But they were coming out of the All-Star break in 94, and I actually, uh, we went to the All-Star game. It was in Pittsburgh that year, and it was a rollicking good time. My father got in a fight with the Philly fanatic. And... <laughs> They were coming out of the break in Chicago, and it was and it was neck and neck all year between the Tribe and Chicago. And Gene Lamont was manager of White Sox, and he said, uh, "I want to pull Albert Bat Albert. Easy for me to say. You I want too. to pull Albert Bell's bat because I think it is doctored. And you know the rule: the bat is supposed to be solid wood. Um, and there are a lot of people who would, you know, hollow out the bat and put cork in, or I, what was it? I think it was Norm Cash used like super balls or something. Yeah, some super balls, a few of them. And you know, they, the idea is that that would get you a heavier, uh, a better bat speed. <laughs> and they took the bat and they put it in the umpire's dressing room in the bowels of Comiskey Park, uh, <laughs> New Comiskey Park. And uh, I think it was Omar Vizquel when he wrote his autobiography. Uh, a few years later, said the problem was that we knew that bat was corked because all of Albert Bell's bats were corked. And I don't know how uh, this this grew out of it, but Grimsley said, "I think I can go get that." How and do you how do you even think about that? I yet some people just have larceny in their hearts. Apparently, born with it. And and it was and I don't necessarily view that as a character flaw, but he. Um, it was one of those uh, – the clubhouse had the, the cinder block walls and the drop ceiling on top of it. And he realized that he could, you know, slide around through the drop ceiling, come down in the umpire's dressing room, and uh, replace the bats. 
And that is precisely what he did. And it became very apparent early on that this was not the crime of the century because it was uh, a very worn Paul Sorrento bat that they replaced it with. And, uh, you know, there was like, you know, flakes from the drop ceiling on the floor. So the, the umpires knew that, you know, somebody had gotten in and replaced the bats. And they said, all right. And, and they did like, you know, remember how they did it in high school where they said, all right, it, something's missing. Put it back. No questions will be yeah, asked. Yeah. It was, and it was kind of that. And again, and Howard Bell still ended up getting suspended uh, for uh, for the use of a cork bat. Uh yeah, there was just so many incidents with this guy. Uh, the, how about the uh, the 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 fan that uh, met the fastball from Albert Bell uh, unwittingly? Well, you know, and unfortunately, there's so many people who have had bad uh, interactions with him, but it was usually precipitated by you know somebody poking the bear. Yeah, I mean that incident at his house in Euclid on Halloween. I mean they were egging his house, and this guy. Uh, Albert Bell has 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 been in recovery. Uh, yeah. he, uh, At he, the time he was admitted. He was yeah, yeah fresh out of uh, of a stint. I believe it was at the Cleveland Clinic. And you know, there's this guy on the railing and he's yelling at him. And he and I believe his exact words were, "Hey Joey, keg party at my house." And uh, Albert was not receptive to that in, in invitation. And the weird thing about that, uh, Vince, is that um, that there's no video of that anywhere um the, no i'm sure there isn't because it's the 90s and nobody had video cameras on them as a matter of course well um you know it wasn't a game on tv and just to kind of go inside baseball for what we did at, at our tv stations at the time all the stations would have to go to the games and shoot every pitch so you'd sh- you'd show the pitcher throwing the ball and if the guy swung and missed then you'd stop your recorder so you had a lot of stop and start of people recording the games Albert Bell uh, seems very labor intensive. It's very labor, and so the, all the stations are doing the same thing. Long story short, um, foul ball. As soon as the guy hits the ball into the foul territory, all the cameramen. There were three cameramen there. They all turn their things off because there's no action. It's a foul ball. It's a stupid foul. There's nothing going to happen with a foul ball going into foul territory and being retrieved, and then so they're waiting to do the next pitch, and. Lo and behold, and when it he down. wanders over, picks up the ball, and none of them are recording that. So, mm-hmm. and very, this actually, very weird. This actually happened. There was another incident like this that, that I talk about. When uh, Orlando Brown um, got hit in the eye with the, with the penalty flag, there was uh, a camera person on the field, and, you know, he, he, he recorded – the ref throwing his flag and then he stopped at that point because the action was done because you don't think that it's going to actually hit somebody and do harm to them. <laughs> yeah, those kinds of things. Uh, just so weird that happened uh, in sports and are in your book and, and even going back to the bell thing. That fan uh, called me up at the TV station. that It was a Saturday afternoon. I was working, doing the weekend sports. He called me and said, I'm the guy that got hit by the ball. I said, don't stop what you're doing. Don't go anywhere. Don't talk to anybody. Can somebody drive you to the station? He did. He drove. And I'll never forget when he we, we sat, sat there and do the interview. And I asked him, can I see where he hit you? And he pulled up his shirt. He was still somewhat inebriated. He pulled up his shirt, and you could see the stitch marks of the ball. Right. Right, here, right in the middle of his chest. Mm-hmm. Beautiful stuff. 
Now, I don't know how we go from stitch marks on chest to bed bugs, but let's see if we can make that transition. All right, all right. Yeah, that's uh, the, the Cavs <laughs> went to uh, Oklahoma City, and the story behind this hotel is fascinating. It's supposed to be like... <laughs> You know, some some oil wildcatter got rich and built this hotel, and it's supposed to be haunted by the ghost of his dead mistress. It's it's just it's it's one of those great urban legends that that really takes on a life of its own. And there there were a whole bunch uh, in when I went to college in Bowling Green, and and there are obviously a bunch of them around in Cleveland too. But anyway, uh, <laughs> while it was not necessarily haunted by ghosts, it appears to have been haunted by bedbugs. Uh, which was which became apparent when the Cavs were playing there. Uh, Kyrie Irving left the game very early on for what he called flu-like symptoms. Okay. And uh, the the next and and that was I think the last game before the Cavs came back home. And they came back home and somebody during media access says, "What happened?" And he said, "Man, it was bed bugs. I got bit by bed bugs. I couldn't get a minute's sleep last night. And I felt terrible." <laughs> What other incidents you want to talk about in the, the, the field people need to know when they pick up your book? Well, you know, there's one thing I, I the the uh, bell and um, the bell cork bat incident was um, one of the incidents in a chapter that I called Larceny Incorporated. <laughs> it's about things that get stolen, and uh, one of them was, and and there were only two other incidents that that I talked about, and one of them was. You know, all of a sudden, Austin Carr's banner went missing from from the rafters at the queue. But the other one, the one that really killed me, is 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 in the mid '90s. Somebody went into the Pro Football Hall of Fame and just walked out with O.J. Simpson's bust. And this was uh, during the 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 late unpleasantness with O.J. Uh, I believe um, he he was going to go to trial, but he had not gone to trial yet. And, and what was really funny about that is, you know, everybody says, I mean, of all the things you can steal in the Hall of Fame, why do you steal a bust? You know, because, I mean, I can't imagine that's got, you know, any resale value. But an ODOT crew actually found it on 77 as you're going into downtown Cleveland. And they, they were able to recover it. And I guess now they're all they're all bolted down because of it. <laughs> well, uh, and it's a great place to visit, but you know, usually you don't have visions of busts being stolen uh, that belong in in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. I know the Browns uh, in the new era, if you will, and now it's been 23 years since they came back. It's, it seems like yesterday they they actually did. I'm sure waiting for a real good team to Maybe talk for about. Maybe I feel like it's been dog it's years. Been, it's, yeah, it's been like your half of most of your life. Uh, but they've they've been hit bad by some bad luck in some instances. Let's go let's go to just the word staff, and I don't mean S T A F F. I mean you know, the other. It's really funny because there are I I came of age in, as a sports fan as in the 1980s and and in the 70s and 80s, you know it seemed like there were lots and lots of fodder uh, from the uh, Indians and the Cavaliers. The Browns seemed like putatively a relatively well-run organization but man since since they came back in 1999 they are the leader in the clubhouse <laughs> for strange things that that have happened and there were and there were a bunch of really uh unusual injuries that that i talk about in in the book as well uh kellen winslow jr decided it was time to uh you know do fast and furious on his motorcycle through westlake and um Gary Baxter, strangely enough, blew out both of his kneecaps. That takes 
incredible bad luck. Yes, yes. And that's, you know, and that comes after on the first play of uh, training camp that year, uh, Charles Bentley blowing out one of his kneecaps. It was just, just an astonishing number of uh, very bad, uh, very freaky injuries. And unfortunately, the problem got compounded. And I don't know, we're still not 100% sure how this all happened. But uh, there were a lot of staph infections that, that resulted from, well, I shouldn't say resulted from, I don't know if that's what it resulted from, but it was, you know, it happened to a lot of players who had sustained these mm. strange injuries and were rehabilitating uh, at the Browns facility in Berea. I believe LaCharles Bentley said, you know, it was terrible. They're, they were talking like they were going to have to take my leg and I might not, you know, live through the night in the hospital. But, you know, it was just a, a strange uh, a strange strain of viruses that kept making their way uh, to Brown's players. It's super odd. And I know even now they, they, they're they no longer using the Cleveland Clinic as their medical people. Um, they switched over to UH, but I think it... I think it all came down to it was whatever they were, whatever procedures they had going on there in Berea, it was time to change. Right. Well, I or guess change the, players. Well, I guess the, the the clinic had gone through a couple of times and said, you know, I mean, I'm not sure there's there doesn't appear to be anything wrong with it. But they didn't actually change to UH until after Haslam bought the team. Yeah. Yeah. I think a uh, uh, longtime uh, lawyer Jack Herrick was involved in. Uh, some of that transition, and yeah, as you mentioned, they they uh, they got Dr. Vuz as their as their head guy, and uh, all they're trying to do now is keep guys healthy and and win football games. Um, Johnny Manziel, two words, calamity. My exact words the night they drafted him. This <laughs> makes the Browns more interesting. It does not make them better. And and it was it was one of those things, and and. You know, uh, unfortunately, it has been it has been colored by, you know, what Sal Palantonio said on draft night on ESPN, where he said that, you know, he was recounting a story where Jimmy Haslam was walking through town. He said, you know, and, and Haslam is a celebrity in Cleveland like he had never been anywhere else. And, um, you know, they walked past a, 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 a homeless person on somewhere downtown and he says, draft Manziel. And, you know, it was kind of taken and, and I can understand. I mean, you're a journalist, too. You know, this is a story that you are telling with the hopes that people will infer that, you know, this is how passionate everybody in the town is yeah. about football. And uh, unfortunately, you know, Manziel was such a calamity that the takeaway becomes the owner of the Browns listened to a homeless guy and drafted a ticking time bomb. And then to compound that, you had uh, an assistant coach getting texts from him, let's go wreck this league or something along those lines. That yes, yes. He said, you know, allegedly that uh, <laughs> uh, um, he was texting with, uh, I can't remember what his official title was, but it was Dowell Loggins. Yeah, And Loggins. he said, uh, you know, let's go wreck this league. And, and they took him at, at the 22nd pick of the first round. Same pick they used on Brandon Whedon. Same one they used on Brady Quinn as well. Uh, it's like they're hexed on on that one. Yeah. But, uh, you know, they drafted him. And, you know, unfortunately, the deck was kind of stacked against Manziel because he was an undersized quarterback who was very skilled at improvisation. Yeah. And he had some athletic gifts. And, unfortunately, you know, uh, 
when you go from college to the pros, you know, most of the guys who are playing college sports were without a doubt the best athletes in, in their high school. But, you know, everybody who uh, who goes on and plays pro sports, you know, they were the one of the best athletes on their college team. So, I mean, everybody's that good. You know, you have to you have to put in the work. And and Johnny, for uh, one reason or another, just didn't have a whole lot of urge to put in the work. You sure you're not talking about Billy Manziel? Remember that thing where he went to Vegas and that's another <laughs> example about how he didn't want to put in the work. He and, could put in the work in Vegas. And the the best part is, uh, I think it was uh, Joe Thomas and and um, oh my God, who's he do the podcast with? Uh, Hawk. Yes. Yeah, Andrew Hawkins. And uh, Manziel was on it there, and he said he got back to his hotel room at like you know, four o'clock in the morning and he realized that he was supposed to be in Cleveland four hours later. And, uh, he, he said he threw his, his, uh, uh, he threw his cell phone into a desk drawer and says, you know what? I can't deal with this. I'm just going to deal with this tomorrow. It's already going to be a calamity. Wow. Wow. Well, let's end on that note. Uh, great, uh, fun reading, but tell our listeners a little bit more about the book, how they can get it and, and that sort of thing. Weird Moments in Cleveland Sports. Uh, it is published by uh, Gray Publishing uh, right here in Cleveland. Uh, you can always order it through their website. Uh, additionally, it is available uh, at the usual suspects. should be on sale at uh, all local bookstores in Northeast Ohio. Barnes Noble, Books a Million, uh, select discount drug marts, I'm told. Cool. And uh, if you want to order it online, you can order it, again, through Gray Publishing or whatever your online retailer of choice is. I highly recommend it. It's a lot of fun. It's painful at times to read some of the in incidents. It was but... painful at times to write some of those incidents. <laughs> but it's uh, it certainly has not been painful uh, chatting with you. All the best on the book and the rest of your uh, journalism career. Keep Thank you. The uh, fun interview and all the best to Vince for success on this book and the rest of his journalism career. A lot of fun doing it, and I hope you uh, pick one up and enjoy reading it as well. And as usual, please rate, subscribe, and share this podcast around on social media. I certainly would appreciate that very, very much. And until the next time, we will catch you on another edition of Tell Talks. Thanks again. <laughs>